take out your Bibles. We are going to be in Amos chapter 9 this morning. We are going to continue our series, Majoring in the Minors. And today we are going to complete the book of Amos. We are going to look at the fifth and final vision. And uh, as you're turning to Amos chapter 9, let's go ahead and ask the Lord to bless our study this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, as we open up your word, we ought to read your word. Help us, uh, Lord, to remember that what is written in these pages, Father God, is your word to us. We can rely on it. We can trust in it. Father, we can trust in you. Help us to see that this morning, Lord, as we look at the promises that you've made and the promises that you've kept, Father God. As you spoke to the Israelites today, that's so long ago, Lord, we ask that you speak to us now through the words as we read them and, and, and we take them in, Father God, speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the title of the message is Promises Made, Promises Kept. And it's one thing to make promises, right? It's an entirely other thing to actually keep them. Promises can get people that come alongside you, want to support you, are in favor of you, and they'll trust you. But if you don't keep those promises and you start breaking promises, you'll find that they also quickly desert you. You don't want to believe anything you say anymore, and you've lost the trust. As I said, we're finishing the book of Amos this morning, and we've seen Amos through many different methods, going to get the message to the Israelites. He's used his uh, opening uh, introduction speech. He's used three sermons. So far, we've covered four visions. We see the fifth one this morning. Throughout these messages, the main thing communicated is that the people are in rebellion against God and that they will be punished and judged for it. They've deceived themselves into thinking that because they were God's people, that he wouldn't follow through on judgment. Now this fifth vision from Amos is meant to drive home the point that God will indeed follow through and keep his promise of judgment against Israel. And what Israel needed to see, and what we need to see this morning, is that it is because God is a God who keeps his promises, even his promises of judgment, that we can have hope in God's future promises. See, our God is a God who makes and keeps promises. He is faithful to his promise of hope and new beginnings, as faithful as he is to bring the promise of judgment and punishment. And it's precisely because of this that we have a solid source for profound hope. Hope cannot and does not exist in and of itself, lest it be an empty shell, devoid of anything of substance. No, ours is an authentic hope that comes from having a faithful, trustworthy God, based upon His nature and His promises. And so in this final chapter, in this final vision, we're called to gaze upon the nature of our God, and notice that he is not to be trifled with. He's inescapable. He's sovereign. And he keeps promises. And because of that, we can trust his promises for our future. 
in Amos chapter 9, verse 1, Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Knock them down on the heads of all the people, and then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. None of those who flee will get away. None of the fugitives will escape. If they dig down to Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide on the top of Armel, from there I will track them down and seize them. If they conceal themselves from my sight on the sea floor, from there I will command a sea serpent to bite them. And if they are driven by their enemies into captivity, from there I will command the sword to kill them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the God of armies, he touches the earth with melts. And all who dwell in it mourn, all of it rises like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. He built his upper chambers in the heavens and lays the foundation of his vaults on the earth. He summons the water of the sea and pours out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Israelites, are you not like the Cushites to me? This is the Lord's declaration. Didn't I bring Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from the land of Kaptur, and the Arameans from Kerr? Look, look, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. This is the Lord's declaration. For I am about to give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes a sieve, but not a pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners among my people who say disaster will never overtake or confront us will die by the sword. In that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards, drink their wine, make gardens, and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord, your God, has spoken. Such wonderful promises that we have within there. The number one promise that we come across is the promise of the inescapable sword. In the first six verses, we see that Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals of pillars so that the threshold shake, knock them down on the heads of all the people, and I will kill the rest of them with a sword. None of the flee will get away, none of the fugitives will escape. He says, If they dig down to Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I'll bring them down. If they hide on the top of Carmel, from there I will trap them down and seize them. If they conceal themselves from my side on the seafloor, from there I will 
captivity. From there, I will command the sword to kill them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Now we get a description. The Lord, the God of armies, he touches the earth and melts. All who dwell in it mourn. All of it rises like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. He builds his upper chambers in the heavens and lays the foundation of his vault on the earth. He summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. So this vision starts off a little bit different than the other ones did. If you remember from the other ones, Amos would see things and then the Lord would go, So tell me, Amos, what do you see? And then the Lord would interpret what Amos saw. Here for the last vision, Amos just begins describing what he saw and speaking what the Lord told him to speak. Amos, what he sees is the Lord standing beside the altar. And the best choice that I can come up with when he says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar as he's up there in battle. It's probably just after their harvest season. And they're all gathered there to offer their offering. God is, it's, it's the false altar of Bethel. Because we remember that God has given an altar to Israel in Jerusalem. And that, is the supposed, that, that was supposed to be the place where the people claimed their peace and obedience to the worship of the one true living God. That altar. And the temple in Jerusalem, it was the center of life for the nation and for the people. But instead, they chose to rebel and made an altar for themselves. And in that rebellion, they polluted the worship. And it spilled over into their moral life, their economic life, and their political life. And so as they came before the Lord, thinking that they, everything was all good, trying to make peace with God and offer what they did, the Lord is standing beside their false, corrupt altar. And then the Lord spoke to Amos, and he gives four affirmations. And in those four affirmations, the Lord declared the destruction of the altar, their temple, and their nation itself. The Lord God affirmed, I will kill The Lord speaking to Amos said, strike the capitals of the pillars. The capitals of the pillars, I had to look this up. I was like, what, the capital city? No, it had nothing to do with that. And, and the uh, columns that they built, then you would have a, a foundation for it, the column part, and then that top square part or whatever shape it was, that's the top of it, and that's the support. So he says, knock out the supports so that the thresholds, the entryways, would shake and become unstable, and it's structurally unsound. It says, knock them down on the heads of all the people. And he says, then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. That's a declaration from the Lord. He says, I will kill the rest of them with the sword. Then God says, I will search. God makes a promise that none of those who flee to get away from that destruction will get away, and no fugitive will ultimately escape. It's similar to what the prophet Jeremiah spoke in Jeremiah 11, 11. He says, therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to bring on them disaster that they cannot escape. You see, there's a false idea among people that somehow we can offend God and yet escape his punishment and his judgment. He says, if they cannot escape, they'll cry out to me, but I won't hear them. 
says, if they dig down to Sheol, my hand from there will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I'll bring them down. If they hide on the top of Mount Carmel, he says, from there I will track. From there I will search and seize them. You see, Job knew the truth with an omnipresent God. There's no darkness, no deep darkness, where evildoers can hide. If your desire is to do evil, God says you cannot hide. Then God says, I will command. He says, if they conceal themselves from my sight at the seafloor, I will command a sea serpent to bite them. You can underline sea serpent if you want and write Leviathan. He says, if they're driven from their enemies into captivity, even as captives, they will not be safe from judgment. I will command the sword to kill them. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, even if you go into captivity as an evildoer, you're not going to escape. And I got it. Leviticus 26.33 He says, I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw a sword to chase after you so that your land become desolate and your cities will become ruins. This is the promise of the Lord. He said, you either keep the covenant or you lose the land. And he also promised in that covenant, I will draw a sword and chase after you. Fourth, God says, I will keep. We're going to second half of verse 4. God says, I will keep my eye on them for harm, not for good. Escape is going to be impossible because of the direct involvement of the Lord. And he's the one who brings and ensures that the judgment is going to be carried out. Wherever they would go, God says, my eye will be fixed on you. There is nowhere you can go to escape my vision. And that, you know, that should worry an evildoer, but it should also comfort us who are in Christ and have that peace with God to know that his eye also never leaves us. Wherever they would go, his eye would be fixed on them, but he has determined that he would destroy them. You see, Israel's apostasy and rebellion, well, yeah, they got the eye of God, all right, in judgment. Similar words would be spoken later by the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah would be speaking as Amos is in these words before the exile for the nation of Judah. You see, Jeremiah is the contemporary to Amos, but to the nation of Judah. In Jeremiah 21.10, which is right before our favorite verse of Jeremiah. For I have set my face against the city to bring disaster and not good. This is the Lord's declaration. It will be handed over to the king of Babylon. We'll burn it. You see, he's setting his face. We've read but we're like, man, I just want to see the face of God. Not as an evildoer. You see the face of God as an evildoer. It's the face of judgment. So Amos refers to God as the Lord, the God of armies, and then he describes his awesome power, that he touches the earth and it melts. He says, all who dwell in it will mourn. He causes all of it to rise and fall like the Nile River of Egypt. Did you know that it is God who shakes the lands? Surely, this 
this awesome God that they had, that gave us victory here, would have possessed also the power to fulfill his promise to seize them and find them from any spot on the earth, in the earth, or under the earth. Did you remember the very first death that did down to Sheol? Even if they die as an evildoer, they will not escape the judgment of the Lord. And Amos says, the Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. The covenant-keeping God would keep his promise and judge those who had rebelled and disobeyed him. The heart of Israel's problem was Israel's heart. They distorted the worship of God. Everything was wrong because they were not right with God. And I like how the preacher's commentary puts it. Nothing works right when we alter the worship of the altar. It remains true for us today and true for churches today. We must worship as God commands. And our worship to God is our obedience to God. Every day in your life, as you seek to obey God, that is your life of worship to Him. It's not your life of salvation to Him. But obedience to God is our worship to Him. And so God promises to bring an inescapable sword. But you see, God also promised the sifting. In verse 7 it says, Israelites, are you not like the Cushites to me? This is the Lord's declaration. Didn't I bring Israel from the land of Egypt? The Philistines from Captor and the Arameans from Kerr. Look, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. This is the Lord's declaration. For I am about to give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve, but not a pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners among my people who say disaster will never overtake or confront us will die by the sword. So God promises an inescapable sword, but he also promises a sifting. And is still speaking for the Lord. He tells the Israelites, he says, are you not like the Cushites to me? Now, do you have an idea because these nations... That are, that are mentioned, they're also the same nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and if you like to make lists of all those nations, Cush is modern-day Ethiopia. It's the Ethiopians. The Lord declares, I am. That's what he said when he said, this is the Lord's declaration. He's, he's using that term, I am. And he's saying, I am the God who brought Israel from the land of Egypt. But I also brought the Philistines from Captor, which is also Crete. It brought the Arameans, who are the Syrians. So anytime you see from Aram or the Arameans, those are the Syrians from Kerr. God is speaking directly to the false assumption that because they were God's people, they had a special task to do what they pleased. You see, they thought as God's people that they do whatever they wanted without any worry for judgment whatsoever. And that's not how our God is. 
That's not how he is today either. We cannot just do whatever just because we are in Christ Jesus. But we seek to love and obey our God because we're in Christ Jesus. So anyway, God reminds Israel, and he tells them this. He says, yeah, I brought you out of Egypt. But then he says something that's very interesting. Many of us may not be aware of this, but he says, I brought the Philistines from Captain and the Arameans from Kerr. He says, don't be proud and presumptuous of your exodus from Egypt. Your enemies each had one also. You see, Israel had a distinct disdain for those other nations because they were awful, they were pagan, and they weren't holy like they were. They all followed the same path that Israel did. They weren't chosen as Israel was to be the chosen nation, the chosen uh, vessel for God to bring about the Messiah. But God still brought them out of their own turmoils to bring them out, and they chose to rebel against him. God is not only working through Israel. As you go through the Bible, you realize this. God has been working with all the nations. In fact, when Israel went into captivity, he said, I'm going to bring you out. And he told them, in 400 years, I'll bring you into the land, because not yet has their wrath been filled up. And so for that whole time of 400 years, he was giving the land of Canaan a chance to repent, a chance to turn. three verses are the final statements of judgment that you find in the book of Amos. They vow an impartial and certain death to sinners, but they also point to the final section, the future promise from the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. And we read that, and we go, wow, he's going to wipe out all of Israel. a sinful nation to bring judgment. And he purposed and promised to destroy it from the, faith, from the face of the earth, and God is fulfilling the covenant curses that he promised. You see, in Deuteronomy 28.20, the Lord will send you against you curses, confusion, or rebuke, and everything you do until you're destroyed quickly, perishing because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. And in 28.63, just as the Lord was glad to cause you to prosper and multiply you, so he will also be glad to cause you to perish and destroy you. You'll be ripped out of the land that you are entering to possess. You see, at the end of the land, God said, follow my covenant or you will lose the land. The land was tied to the covenant with God. But notice that God says his eyes are on the sinful kingdom. So the judgment is against the rule of the kingdom of Israel. Not the people of Israel who are God's people. And to confirm this, look at what God says. He says, however, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. This is the Lord's declaration. Again, I am. The earlier possibility that Amos made in chapter 5 of a remnant is now made certain because God made it a promise. God would have mercy on those who repented. God says, for I'm about to give a command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve. And so God is going to take Israel, and he's going to shake it as one shakes a sieve, for the purpose of sifting 
And the purpose of sifting is to separate. God wants to separate from what is good, just as they would in those days with their with their creeds or, or with anything else. You, you shake it to separate what's good from what is waste and from what is impure. But look at the punishment word. Not a pebble will fall to the ground. There's two ways to see the shifting. The first one is that it's a fine mesh for the shifting that lets chaff and dust go through, but it catches all the grain. So God would screen out and save any righteous among his people. Otherwise, some view the sieve as a coarse mesh sieve used at the beginning of the sifting process to screen out stones and dirt clods, letting smaller grain fall through. Referring to a sinner who would not escape the screening of God's judgment, yet the righteous would fall through out of the judgment. Either interpretation works because the point is God's impartial sifting to separate the righteous from the sinners, or as Jesus said, the sheep from the goats. God is coming after the sinners. He said, the one who will not humble themselves, the one who says, disaster, we don't have to worry about that. Disaster is never coming. It'll never overtake us. God says, they will surely die by the sword. So those who repent of God, they're, they're still going to go into exile. Okay? The nation lost its land, lost its kingdom, lost its dominion. They're going into exile. Now, God says, you can repent and go along with the plan, trusting in me, and you will be saved. Or you can just pretend like there's nothing wrong, continue living as you are, and you will die. Whether you go into captivity first or not, you will die. By the sword. We see the same shifting in the New Testament as well. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 2. Just for God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood of the, from the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them by day, by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And here's the point. Then the Lord knows how to rescue godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the fleeting desires of the flesh and despise authority, bold, arrogant people that are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. You see, God is able to keep the righteous from judgment while bringing judgment in totality because he sits. That's his promise. God then gives a promise to restore. Look at verse 11. He says, In that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration.
grapes, and when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards, drink their wine, make gardens, and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. So God promised an inescapable sword for Israel. He promised to sift Israel. The northern kingdom is what he's referring to at this time. In 732 BC, we know that Israel was conquered and exiled by Assyria. The importance of these promises of judgment and of exile and of the loss of the kingdom are important of being fulfilled because in them God made another promise. A promise of restoration. And it is because of the promise of judgment being fulfilled and it came that Israel could hope in the promise of the Lord to restore. Do you see how that works? God says, in the days I will restore the fallen shelter of David, I will repair its gap, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. And notice the similarities of God. Remember in the judgment, God said, I will, I will, I will. And here in the promise of restoration, God again says, I will, I will, I will. And that's because we come to a wonderful truth. The promise of judgment and restoration are both kept by the power of the Lord. Now, if you're a history buff, or if you're just up on your news with Israel, since 732 BC, even to this day, there has been no Davidic king. No one of the days that the king line of David has sat in Israel to rule. There is no kingdom in Israel right now. In 1948, the nation was born again. But did you know that God can still fulfill his promise even if Israel disappears again? Because he has not established the kingdom. But the fact that Israel has been established again as a nation should be a wonderful just example to us of the power of God to bring something back from non-existence. Never before has a nation been so completely conquered as Israel was ever come back as a people, reviving their language, reviving their culture. They've been conquered multiple times, and they still came back because of the hand of the Lord. But right now, as the nation's been restored, they have no king, they have no priest, they have no temple, and they do not do any sacrifices. They are not sovereign. The Lord has promised that in that day, in that day, that day is always talked about in a different light, right? In that day, there will be darkness, there will be doom. The sun will fade, the moon will fade. You know, it, it talks about how everything's going to come apart. But God says in that day, when the ordeal is over, that promised day, he will restore, he will repair, and he will rebuild the dynasty of David. And he will establish the kingdom he promised. And in the fulfillment of the restoration of the dynasty of David, God promises to restore also the national purpose for Israel. 
as well. That's what he says. He says that that way they may possess the remnant of Edom. If you remember, Edom was in reference to Esau. Edom being the brother of Jacob. The next book that we're going to look at in the Minor Prophets is the book of Obadiah. And he spoke to the nation of Edom. Their judgment is coming next. Edom is a nation that was perpetually hostile to Israel and represents all of Israel's enemies. But God says this, the kingdom will be united under its Davidic king and become the source of blessing for all Gentile nations as well. That was the part that Israel missed. Israel missed the fact that they were to be used by God for a national purpose to unite all the Gentile nations together. Yes, they were to be the nation above that, and only for the purpose of God bringing about that to unite the kingdoms under the name of the Lord. Genesis 12, 3, the promise made to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples, all the people, but all the people, that's all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues on earth will be blessed through you, Israel. That was their national purpose, to be a blessing. God's plan from the beginning has been to provide salvation for all including the Gentile nations. And God has continually affirmed that there will be a united rule under the Davidic king, under the Messiah. That's who the Davidic king will be. When God restores the kingdom in the millennium, it's under David's son, Jesus, who is the Messiah, Savior of both Jew and Gentile, who bears the name of the Lord. In Isaiah 43, the prophet says, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. God will gather everyone back who is in his name. Malachi 1.11, my name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offering will be presented in my name in every place, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. And we see this even quoted in the New Testament. Acts 15. The Council of Jerusalem, quoted by the Apostle James, says, after the words of the prophets, and, and the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, after these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. You see, the Council of Jerusalem was set up to settle the debate. Did you have to become circumcised to become a Jew to be saved? And James quotes this to say, no, God was going to call the Gentiles all along, not only the Jews. God promises to restore kingdom, purpose, and also blessing. And verse 13 says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. The plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, the sower of seeds. If you know anything about agriculture, you know that the reaper and the plowman are never out at the same time. They're separated by seasons. 
But in those days, the harvest will be so bountiful and so plentiful that the reaper's not even done reaping when the plowman has to go back out and start plowing. The treading of grapes is still being tread, while yet the seeds have to be sown again. And he said, mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with it. And mountains and hills are the worst farmland ever. Yet the ground will be so fruitful that even the mountains and the hills will produce. God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. God's people will live in peace, and they will enjoy lavish abundance. And God will plant Israel in her own land, never to be uprooted again. The most comforting words and the whole thing. The Lord, your God, has spoken. At first look, the severity of the judgment at the temple might be shocking to us, but it is to be a source of hope. God gave Israel repeated opportunities to repent and return. He told them exactly what would happen if they refused. Who would God be if he kept promising destruction but never brought it? One of those who kept doing the things that brought it. We would lose trust in God. Remember, promises kept is what makes us trust or promises made. We lose trust in God doing what he says. We lose our sense of hope. If we can't trust God, we have no hope. If we assume God won't keep his promises of judgment, what do we have to hope in that he's going to keep his promises of a future restoration, a future resurrection, a future salvation? You see, true security is found in trusting God. Trust God for promises made comes by promises that are kept. And a secure trust in God is a trust that trusts God in everything. Verse 11 through 15 speaks of the restoration of the Davidic covenant. God made his house be raised again, which it will, at the return of Jesus Christ as the son of David. When he returns to rule and reign from Jerusalem, we will live in a glorious time in which we're beginning to see the fulfillment of those promises to Israel fulfilled now. There is a controversy that comes from these promises, though, because Christians are confused how Israel and the church relate with each other. And there's four understandings to this. First, understanding that Israel has been replaced by the church. The Jews rejected the Messiah, the Lord, and, for, and, and, and because of that, the Lord forsook Israel and started over with the church. There were many times where he wanted to start over with the nation of Israel, but he never did. I have a hard time believing that all of a sudden he was going to just change that. All promises to Israel in this belief apply only to the church. The second view is Israel is synonymous with the church. This means that all the promises and all the prophecies concerning Israel materially and naturally are fulfilled in the church spiritually and eternally. I don't believe that that's the case, that God would make a promise to Israel and fulfill it to someone else. If you don't believe me on this, if you're a parent, go to your kids, go to your oldest son and promise to give him $100. But instead, give $100 to your second-born son and, and see how they feel about that. Israel, in the third view, is equal to the church. 
Vespius says that devout Jews who practice Judaism as it is will enter the kingdom of God just as devout Christians because they are all his children. The Bible teaches that only those who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will enter into the kingdom of God. I take the last position because I believe it's what the Word of God teaches. And I believe that that's what we see in Scripture plainly. And it's this. God teaches and deals with Israel and the church in this way. Israel is distinct from the church. And the church is distinct from Israel, both practically and prophetically. You see, all the prophecies that concern the church and the church age are all those that are fulfilled in the times of the Gentiles. It's a, it's a big parenthesis in the middle of Israel's prophecies. And it was the promise of God in which he said that I'm going to put Israel away for a minute to provoke them to jealousy as their national purpose is given to another entity for a time. It's not permanent. The largest area in which this is dealt with is three chapters in the book of Romans. Romans 9, 10, and 11. These chapters focus on Israel. When you want to know what something, te- what something is being taught in the Bible, you go to the place where it talks about it the most. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that is where it is talked about the most. By the Apostle Paul, who is very knowledgeable and experienced within the Old Testament scriptures, but not only that, was inspired by the Lord God to write New Testament scripture. And these are there to show that God is trustworthy and faithful to keep his promises that he made to Israel, and that the church in no way replaced Israel. The unfulfilled promises to Israel will be fulfilled in Israel. Why can we trust that? Because God's other promises were also fulfilled. Promises made and kept leads to trusting for promises made. Romans 11 speaks specifically of the restoration of Israel, in which all at that time will come to acknowledge and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. In the last days. After studying Amos, we're prepared to walk our God. If you remember, that was the minor theme of Amos, is walking with God. We're now prepared to walk with God. We have a new sense of awe, a new sense of wonder. And he's personally intervened to make us all right with himself. He gives us the power to live righteous lives as he commands. And now we behold God incarnate in Christ. You see, Christ, his death on the cross, establishes the righteousness with God which we could never earn or deserve. And as we understand that promises made, promises kept, you can trust Jesus with your life for the forgiveness of sin. Because God has promised that through his death, sins are forgiven in his name. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. And Father, as we come to the end of this this book of Amos, Lord, and the the words that you spoke through. Lord, I pray that you would just write that on our hearts indelibly, Father God, that we can trust you, that our God is trustworthy, that what you say you do, that you are not a God who has any turning or changing within him, that what you say you will make come to pass. And it's because of that that we can trust you. Because of what you've done in the past, as you promised, we can trust you for what you promised to do in the future. 
our future holds, and we know the God who holds our future. Lord, I pray for those that are listening, those that are here, that they haven't yet trusted you even for salvation. Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to the hearts of those that are not yours, that you would reveal to them the need to wake up to their unrighteousness, to their wickedness, for you have promised that both right and unrighteous and the wicked will face judgment. And it's an inescapable sword. 